Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Welcome to Shameless, the podcast that one listener described this week as intelligent celebrity gossip, adding, yes, it is possible. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journos, Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews. Hello. Hello. Coming up on today's show, Beyonce is taking over Vogue's September issue and is bringing people of colour with her. Why Married at First Sight's Tracy Jewell keeps flooding the Australian media cycle and how Jen Aniston is changing the way we view single women. But first, Zara, you just took a big gulp of tea. <laughs> I tried to do it off the microphone. Um, were you going to ask me a question? How are you? I'm, I feel like I'm crashing down. You're not well. No, I'm actually, I don't, I feel fine. Mm. I'm not sick. I just lost my voice completely this week, which is not great. And so I have an apology for anyone who, who finds this kind of annoying. <laughs> Maybe they like the husky voice. Some people do. I'm always um, really disingenuous when I do lose my voice because I always say, oh, it's so annoying. But in fact, I, I quite like the sound. I can't. Uh, it's not that annoying. You're kind of like Phoebe from Friends in that episode where she tries to get a husky voice or keep her husky voice. Yeah, well, so that was how my week was. I think it was that classic second week back from holiday, overwork myself and realise that not everything's a, a beach in the Melbourne coast. Are you suffering that sadness whenever you look in the bathroom mirror and your tan is slowly fading from your holiday or has that not happened yet? I'll just start topping it up. It's oh, fine. Okay. Right. Cheetah's, cheetah's guide to your tan. <laughs> um, how was yours? It was good. It was good. I'm settling into freelance life now and it's really suiting me because I like to work at weird hours. You know this of Mm. me. You normally prepare for the podcast way before I do. Whereas I do my preparation. I don't think you've ever created the document. No. Where we put our notes in. Yeah. No, you always do it. You always do it. I tend to be very productive quite late in the day. Is that your way of sort of making excuses for being disorganized? No, 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 no. I have a second wind at about 8pm where I just have all this passion and creativity where I want to write and I want to do stuff then. I rarely feel very creative at 9am. Yeah, that's fair. I wonder honestly how creative or what my creative process would be like if I got rid of a nine to five, like when my hours would be. But I think because I haven't had that opportunity in a while, I don't actually remember. Yeah, well, I'm trying to go easy on myself because I told everyone I'm taking two weeks off. I'm not doing anything. Yeah, nice. It hasn't worked out like that. I have picked up different articles across the two weeks because I feel guilty for doing nothing. So Mitch isn't super thrilled with the idea that I never really took those two weeks off. It's hard the idea of trying to take a holiday when you're not, no one's enforcing it on you and you're not going anywhere. Like usually if you take a holiday from your full-time job and you are just staying in Melbourne, you can't physically go to work. Yeah. Whereas you could physically open your laptop and go to work, which is clearly what you've been doing. I think I'm also really nervous about people hearing, oh, Michelle's gone freelance and then seeing me do nothing and thinking freelance just means I'm taking an extended leave period period with no pay and nothing set up. 
Thank you, Centrelink. All right. Well, let's stop talking about our weeks. This week, we were talking a lot about the Vogue and Beyonce story. Do you want to give me a quick wrap up before you take another sip of tea? I'm sorry. I'm trying to do it off the microphone because there's actually nothing I hate more than people that drink on microphone, but it's the only thing that's going to keep my voice going for an hour. Um, this was probably my favorite story of the week, I would say, in that there was a story that came out in the Huffington Post this week that was an exclusive that said Vogue's September issue, which is... The biggest issue of the year, it's always the, it's where the the biggest focus is on, it's where the most effort goes into. It's where the most trends are set, basically. And the report came out that Beyonce had almost entire full control over Vogue's US September issue. And this was a big deal, A, because Anna Wintour rarely relinquishes control, and B, because they, they went into detail saying that she had sort of editing control over captions and things like that. The other, the other reason it was a big deal is because she was choosing who was going to shoot the cover and it was the first ever person of colour to shoot a Vogue cover in its, what, 120-plus year history. Mm, in the US magazine. It just blew my mind. So it's a little bit confusing. With British Vogue, Rihanna is the first person of colour to be on the September issue. With US Vogue... Beyonce has brought in the first photographer of colour on the September issue. That does baffle me because Beyonce has posed on Vogue in the last couple of years, like on the cover of Vogue. Mm. And it does surprise me because she has held a lot of power in the last few years. This is not a new thing for Beyonce to hold a lot of clout in these kind of scenarios. For her to not demand that, say I'm not doing the cover unless this person does you know, the shooting. But the the photographer that's shooting the US or that has shot the US September Vogue cover is 23 years old. He's so young. And I read a really good piece about this in The Guardian. Uh, It was by a young 19-year-old photographer who was also a person of colour. And he was saying that he's only 19, but he's already been given opportunities that he never envisaged himself Mm. receiving. And that's mostly because he's on social media and that really allows him cut through. Whereas people in high positions of power in the industry never would have given him that voice or that platform. He doesn't really need them anymore because he's already creating that for himself. And his piece in The Guardian, which we'll put in the show notes, it was really short and was really sweet. But the ultimate point I took from that is that people of colour can start cementing themselves in the industry, even without titles like Vogue now, because they can be such a presence on Twitter and Instagram Mm. and Facebook. Which is great. I do think, I mean, it doesn't solve all our issues at all, especially when it still has been 120 years. And we still have, what, five, ten years of social media under our belts and this still hasn't happened. I do. I did wonder when I read this story, particularly about US Vogue, a couple of things. The first was I just had such doubt about the fact that Beyonce would have as much control as they're purporting her to have. Mm. It's Anna Wintour we're talking about. There's no way Beyonce is going to be you know, the the last say on this kind of thing. There's mm. absolutely no way. But I thought the timing was so interesting. So this came out on, I'm going to say Tuesday, Wednesday, Australian time. There was a, uh, so the Huffington Post released a story. It seemed to me a pretty deliberate leak. I think it seemed to have come, I mean, this is me just going a bit wild here. Spitballing. But hear me out. Seemed to me that it come straight from US Vogue because it was very deliberate and it was very positive. The day after this story was leaked, Edward Enifil, who is the editor of British Vogue, mm-hmm. who is a – he's pretty new. He's only done about 10 issues, but he's a pretty remarkable editor for British Vogue because he's the first black gay man to to edit the magazine, released his own cover, which was Rihanna on the cover, which was the first black woman on the September issue in, in British Vogue's history. It kind of felt like Anna Wintour wanted to jump the gun and be a little bit more relevant. No, for for sure, because Edwin Anifil has been celebrated in the entire 10 months that he's been editor, or maybe a year now, because I think on five of the 10 issues that he has released, five of them have had women of colour on the the front. He's pushing for an entire revolution in the industry and in the magazine, and it it does make Anna Wintour look a little slow coming behind. So it it just came as a really interesting... Timing, the timing, exercising timing. I think the day before the fact it was coming through the Huffington Post and it wasn't the Vogue releasing themselves. Maybe the cover's not ready. That's why they did it first. And we can't forget that the character of Anna Wintour uh, was the inspiration for the Devil Wears Prada. Her former assistant or former uh, personal assistant, whatever it is, Andy existed in real life under a different name and wrote that book about her experience under Anna Wintour. So what you're saying isn't all that. I actually think it's – the minute I thought it, I thought, it's quite a good thought. Um, (laughs) I just wondered, though, given how slow they are to pick up these kinds of things, 
how Vogue is even relevant anymore, truly. And I know that sounds like quite a blind statement because Vogue has, you know, just so much presence in, in the fashion world and is, is quite aspirational for so many people. But it did make me wonder how relevant it was. I mean, I love fashion, not in a highbrow way, in fact, quite in a lowbrow way. But I don't find it to be relevant. If I want creative inspiration, I'm not going to Vogue. I'm going to social media. Mm, see, I differ from you when it comes to this. I actually think print magazines have more of an influence than people in digital media would like them to still. I, I, I know that they're slipping and I know they have been slipping for over a decade. However, I think Vogue still does hold a pretty unique place in the hearts of women. And I think it's ties to the Met Ball. As you said, it's hugely influential in fashion. But Vogue and the Met Ball are inextricably linked. They are founded with each other, I guess. The magazine's editor-in-chief in 1971 was the host of the Met Ball and it's held that power ever since within the magazine. So- I get that. I do. But I think my concern comes more from I don't think you can have a brand or a magazine these days without being a little bit political. I don't think people will have time for you. But I think it is. I think it- No, well, it's not doing it very well. I mean, all I have to think back is they tried to do a sort of gender fluid issue with Gigi and Oh, God, Zane. that was so stupid. It's, it's also cringe. Like, people, people don't take Vogue seriously in – in an intellectual sense, I'm going to say. Well, I think you're speaking about them. They're not all one and the same. I think Vogue Australia is actually quite True. good. If you pick up a issue of Vogue Australia, and I think we downplay how influential that is here in Australia, Vogue circulation online and in print exceeds, from my knowledge, women's media publications in Australia that are online. So if you go to Vogue's website and look at their statistics and how many people come to their website every month yeah. and how many people read their print magazines, I think we do downplay how many women are going to Vogue as a touch point for culture and fashion and social commentary. And I do think the Australian magazine does a better job of the US magazine. Do you? Yeah, that. I agree with that. I think that I, with Anna Winter at the at the top, it is a little more out of touch than the rest. But I do worry because print circulation is going down and there's little doubt that soon all magazines will be dead. There is no doubt about that. I don't think Vogue's digital footprint is good enough to to keep up with everybody else. I think they're still relying on the the old age print magazine to get them through reputation-wise. They don't have – like I don't go to Vogue to read beautiful features and read beautiful things. The, the only piece I can remember reading that I thought that was pretty good in the last year, I think – was that Lena Dunham piece on breakups. Mm. And that was by Lena Dunham. Yeah, and you could get that from Lenny Newsletter. Or... Exactly. Anyway, I just I just think it's a really interesting time for Vogue coming into the September issue and it's a really interesting time for British versus American Vogue because I think there's always reports of a bit of tension between those two editors and I just thought that timing was super curious. Michelle, it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we will bring you five stories, or in this case, am I going to do a spoiler? I'm breaking the rules yes, this week. Okay. Um, <laughs> from the rough and tumble of the news cycle that you may have missed, Mish, take me away. All right, my first story. Take me away, take it away. Take me away. <laughs> the first story, Todd McKenney ignites family feud after revealing ex-boyfriend married his sister. That I'm, is from Yahoo B. I am so surprised you are all over this story because I think this is my favourite story of the week. This is the weirdest, wackiest celebrity news story I think we've come across in quite a while. It's so weird. I'll give you the context for anyone listening who isn't across this. Todd McKenney is a big uh, player in the dance musical industry in Australia. Yeah. He's Dancing currently with the Stars Judge. Dancing with the Stars is currently on Rocky Horror Show. He also did that uh, special TV thing. I don't even know what it was called. I think it was called the the Real Full Monty that was oh, on Channel course, Seven yeah. or whatever last week. last week. He's that guy. He basically came out and gave an interview saying that his estranged sister, who he doesn't really speak to at all anymore, hasn't seen in about a decade, is now with a man that he dated for five years. Back in the eighties or something. It's weirder because he was so. He says he was with this Simon Gallagher or Gala or something. His name is. He said they were together for five years, and Simon and his wife and his wife and his sister Lisa have been married for thirty-one. So he's kept this under the wraps for over three decades. Mm. It's weird timing to bring it out now, and I'm curious as to why you would want to bring it out. I think maybe he might have. I can surely he'd have an autobiography coming out soon because I know in the interview he said. I always wanted to write an autobiography, but I never knew how to write this part. 
So I wondered if he's found a way to write the part. Simon, his parent ex, had a really interesting response on Facebook. They basically called him a fame whore, right? A headline whore. Headline whore. And said that it was full of lies, but then neither of them denied it. Well, this is the thing to me. I... Yeah, I think it's quite damaging. I'd love to know whether the couple's kids, uh, Tom McKenney's sister and her husband, whether their kids actually knew. Yeah, so Tom McKenney said in the interview that the girls definitely knew and they were old enough to like have it public. But it was the, I think they said the extended family who a few members might not have known where it might got a, a bit weird. I'm just not sure why it's news in 2018. Because people like you and me are talking about it now and you said it's your favourite story of the week. Yeah, I know, I know, but it's so weird. And I just I cringe to think of yeah. those young girls oh, who are involved totally. who now have their dad's sexuality strewn across the media. Yeah. Uh, my second story, this one's a bit different. Kim Kardashian gets slammed for her thrilled reaction to being called anorexic and skinny. That's from Hollywood Life. So Kendall and Kim and Chloe, Chloe, Chloe. all yep. of them were behind backstage somewhere. Yes. And basically I went and watched her Instagram story because I'm a fiend for Kardashian news. Basically she was wearing these PVC pants and a leotard and she looked thin, which she always does. She didn't yes. really look any different to any time, other time I've seen her. And both Kendall and Chloe were calling her anorexic in a very positive way. Yeah, a struggle. I I think this conversation is interesting because I think they absolutely should be called out on it for obvious reasons. But I don't think their conversation would be that different to how a lot of young girls talk to each other about weight. Yeah, young girls, but maybe 15 to 16-year-old girls. Which is why I think it's so dangerous is because a lot of young girls actually are talking like this and that's why it needs to be called out. Yeah, absolutely. But it's just weird for women. Oh, she's nearly 40. Kim Kardashian's almost 40. Why are you talking about being anorexic in a good way? Like, you cannot be that stupid. I Um, I saw the most... The, the, this I saw a story come after this story, which made me laugh so much because it just summed up the news cycle in like a second for me, which was the think piece that came straight away, which was, I think it was from The Independent. What Kim Kardashian squealing about being skinny on Instagram can tell us about neoliberalism and patriarchy. Like, <laughs> oh my God. Like, it's worthy oh of a God. think piece in a conversation, but that kind of stuff, I reckon that just sums up the news cycle in, in two seconds. That makes me yawn. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. The only thing I have to say about this is if you're waiting for the Kardashians to be feminist warriors, you're going to be waiting for a very long time. Yeah. I think we've tried to fit them into that mold for so long. They're not going to do it. Find someone new. This was the same week that Kylie Jenner advertised skinny tea or whatever it is. Kim Kardashian's always out there with her skinny lollipops and chloe with her comeback revenge bods so they're not going to be feminist warriors we just need to let them be what they are and call them out when they say stupid crap like this my third story bachelor in paradise star tara pavlovich reveals her relationship with sam cochrane was toxic in capital letters and says she was relieved when it was finally over that's from daily mail there's actually a typo in their headline i hope they saw that which was relieved when it when it was finally over Oh, hope the Daily Mail sub-editors got to that one. I don't know if they have any. <laughs> I'm sorry, next. Um, <laughs> I always feel a bit uncomfortable when I get this kind of unique. I crave it and then when it comes to me, I get awkward when I have this really unique insight into somebody's relationship breakdown, mm. especially when it's only from one side. I don't know. I My sister commented that it's it's interesting that Sam's being painted in a light that is similar to the light we saw him in the Sophie Monk season, yeah. which was... Not a great guy. Basically a misogynist. Yeah. We both wrote think pieces with that Sophie Monk season about Sam Cochrane and how he came across. And we were super surprised when we then watched Bachelor in Paradise and he was depicted as the antithesis of what he was on Sophie Monk season. I thought back to that and I stand by that piece. I can put it in the show notes just for a laugh. Um, because <laughs> it, was, it was like a little bit dramatic of me, which is not out of the realm of possibility for me to write dramatically. But I thought about this and I, I still stand by it because he was painted in a great way in, this, in Bachelor in Paradise. If Tara's right and it was a very toxic relationship and he wasn't great to her, then that sort of does, does follow a pretty firm narrative of what a misogynistic boyfriend would be like, which would be overly intense and overly um, enthusiastic at the start. Yeah. Doesn't that follow a pretty common narrative? Yeah, it does. I think the most troubling quote in that interview to me was that she was saying Sam would often denigrate her intelligence and would Mm. call her dumb and say she doesn't deserve anyone better and really undermine her that way. And I think that really spoke to a lot of women who have had 
douchebag boyfriends who have done that exact same thing. All right, my fourth story is Millie Bobby Brown and Jacob Sartorius break up after seven months together. That's from Billboard. Sad face. Yeah, sad. They're, what, like 13 or 14. So (laughs) I just found it curious that this is such worldwide celebrity news when they're literally probably in what year eight or year nine yeah it makes me sad yeah we'll move around (laughs) i don't have much else to add my fifth story lebron james has one more career defining moment in his home state opening a public school in akron that's from la times I forced you to put this in. You did. And do you want to explain why why we love it so much? I was in love with this story last night. I could not stop reading. So LeBron James, obviously America's most talented, most famous uh, basketball player in a – you're smiling at me. Look at you with the sport knowledge. Thank you so much. I have. (laughs) Woman of many talents. Um, I think there's a a pretty big sense that when in the basketball industry and the sport itself, when there's a a truckload of ego, when there's a lot of money – when there's just a lot of um, arrogance all around LeBron James sort of circumvents all of it by being a really good guy. He's with the same girl he's been with since school before he was drafted to the basketball league. I just showed my lack of knowledge there. <laughs> I probably should have called it the NBA. And basketball. He, he does a lot with charity. He has his own charity. But I think this is the most, like the LA Times said, career-defining moment because he's opened this school in his hometown and it is – They have pumped research into this school to make sure it is going to be the best possible school. It's a public school on public record for young, disenfranchised, at-risk, low socioeconomic kids that he used to grow up around. Yeah, one of the details that really touched me most was that he's given every kid a bike and he was saying that the reason he wanted that to happen is because when he was their age, I think they're year fours, most of them, right? When he was in year three and four, his bike was really pivotal in getting him out of bad areas quickly. Mm. And I think that's really beautiful and also sad at the same time. He's also given every student a free laptop so they can do their work it's just a gorgeous gorgeous story and I think he's a shining light in an industry where there is a lot of ego as you said and there's also a lot of selfishness totally and I would recommend anyone to go look at LeBron James's charity work to go look at even his Wikipedia he does a lot lot more than the average athlete and I think we're often calling out athletes for being not the best guys he seems like a genuinely lovely man well yeah and I think the the most interesting insight I saw was on Twitter this week which when it was saying that that every billionaire in the world is investing in space. Like Elon Musk in there, here comes LeBron James that just wants to invest in the neighbourhood that he grew up in. Like, why why don't more people do that? Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm going to break the rules. Oh, I do go. have a sixth story, but it's not from a publication. It's just from our Facebook group. Yes. I do want to share that after last week's episode, I did put something in our closed Facebook group, which is just for our most dedicated listeners. But anyone is welcome. Anyone is welcome. Uh, I put it in our Facebook group that I'd spoken to a doctor about Sarah's day and his recommendation for people to call her out was to recommend or nominate her for the Bent Spoon Award. It's basically a national award by skeptics.com.au, which honours anyone who is spreading medical misinformation. Yeah. And I can share that Sarah's Day has been officially nominated for the 2018 award because so many listeners went and nominated her on the website. Well done, everyone. Thank you. Hey, is that all you've got? That's all I've got. You don't have a seven or eight? No, that's it. Okay, thank you. This experiment has reminded me that when I love a person, I must not forget to take care of myself too, that I trust too easily. This experiment has shaken me awake and helps me see what I'm worth. And unfortunately, Dane. You don't deserve me. This week, former reality star Tracy Jewell was back in the headlines again. She'd broken up with her partner again and was left on the other side of the world with no money. This is not the first breakup Jewel has made public. In fact, it's the third in almost as many months and certainly not the first time she's sought a headline about it. Mish, tell me how you feel about the media when potentially vulnerable people are grabbing headlines when they mightn't be in the best headspace. Well, this is the complicated aspect of this story because it's very very hard to place ownership on the media when we don't know we don't know if Tracy Jewell is vulnerable we don't know if she's just very very good at commanding attention with uh controversial headlines I think ultimately I've been thinking about this for a while the 
ownership of who is responsible here lies with television networks who put Mm. reality stars in this position in the first place. When you're casting for Married at First Sight, are these people looking at different factors to make sure that these normal people from normal lives can deal with fame once they go outside the television show? I agree with that. I think it's very hard and you have to be very careful in these conversations to also, you know, label someone as vulnerable more than the the next person. I have to say, if I'm going to be brutally honest, someone like Tracy Jewell who has, we have seen live her life pretty extensively on the screen, who have, we have seen live her life through the media and through social media in the last few months is more likely to be more vulnerable to these kinds of things. Mm. It worries me to no end whenever I see her grabbing another headline and grabbing another headline. It's almost like it's crack for some for some reality stars who once they get a little bit of a shot of the media, they want more and they want more and they want more and potentially start living their lives in order for the headlines to come. Yeah. That's what worries me. I know that you say the ownership should be on the television networks and I agree first and foremost the ownership should be on the television networks. They might not always get it right. So what happens after that? How do the media respond after that when there is someone like Tracy Jewell who has been, who has gone through the system, who has been on TV, who has had all of the checks and balances in place, who is still craving a headline and is still sort of wanting her her life to appear like a car crash in real time? Like what what's the media's responsibility there? Do you think that they just let it go because they weren't the ones to pick her and put her in the light? Well, first of all, I think we're at the very peak of Tracy Jewell in right now because I think it's funny when reality stars leave television this really interesting journey happens where everyone goes from caring about their lives and generally being uh, just interested and curious as to what's going on and I think pretty quickly we turn a little bit and that mood sours and instead of wanting to know about their lives we click because we're resentful of them and because we're a bit snarky about them wanting the fame and attention so I actually think not just in Tracy Jewell's case, but probably in every reality TV star's case, I think in 2018 we're becoming more cognizant of what motivates a lot of these people. Mm. And I'm not saying everyone because I know personally some people who have gone on reality TV, but I think there's a difference between going on any reality TV show and ending up as a Tracy Jewell-esque character. And I do think I've been to events with a lot of reality stars as well recently and I've seen a lot of reality stars in social circles and I do think it's really curious how they get themselves into a state where their livelihood and their relevance depends on continually shocking people in headlines and in news stories. That I find really sad and when you say that the, our attitudes towards them and towards our clicks into the stories does change – I wonder if that even matters. Like, does it matter why we're clicking into a story, whether it's because we love them or it's because we resent them? We're still clicking. We're still giving that news outlet our click. They're getting good numbers for the stories and that's going to perpetuate a cycle where they're not going to stop writing about that person until we stop clicking. But see, I would argue that us clicking out of resentment more more so than anything else is the first sign that interest is waning. I believe this is happening with Tracy Jewell, that people are getting more and more irritated by the constant headlines. This is the first downslide in the interest in her and I think eventually media companies will react once they realize that they can't just put out a story about Tracy Jewell anymore and get clicks the amount of coverage about her will really rapidly decline potentially but I think of that in two ways secondly if she continues to live her life in a quiet mm, quote-unquote outrageous way where her life sort of does resemble a reality tv show it's it's almost worth reporting on because that's interesting. It is interesting. We might resent that, but it's an interesting narrative. The other thing I think is I don't I've thought a lot since I had a month off work and a month off the media and a month off sort of always being on my phone. And I've been thinking a lot about the media and my consumption since I did that. I think when you're working in the media all the time and you're just clicking on anything and I couldn't work out at the end of the day whether I was clicking on something because I felt like I should know it rather than I feel like I want to know it. Or will it make a clicky story for work? Exactly. But I do think now, and I know this sounds like the ultimate cliche, that the media actually do think we're quite stupid. Absolutely no doubt about it. They do think we're stupid because numbers might be high for a Tracy Jewell story like we've said. But we don't actually feel good about reading them. And I think that, like you said, when we do start clicking in for resentment and when we don't feel good about ourselves reading a story, when we feel a bit yuck knowing all of this information, 
I think it hurts our faith in media brands. I think that's where we start losing our trust because we start thinking, why are you telling me this? Why is it making me feel bad? And why is somebody else who is who is a human but is sort of being treated like a character that doesn't matter always being put on the line like this? Yeah, I agree with you that since leaving Mamma Mia in particular where you're constantly looking for stories and you're constantly looking for reality TV and celebrity, which is a huge part of the content they put out. And I love that content. We obviously both do. We have a obviously. podcast about it. I agree. I think the content I'm reading now is very different to what I even thought a couple of weeks ago. I am baffling myself by the things that I'm clicking on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm going a lot more to The Guardian than I ever saw myself doing, which is really, really unusual. But moving away from Tracy Jewell for a second, because I do think we need to give her agency and we can't just say, oh, she's vulnerable and leave it. I find it really interesting more generally the health and the well-being of reality stars because not only there was the episode of You Can't Ask That on the ABC while you were away, which was really incredible and I recommend anyone go listen to that. I feel personally responsible because on that episode of You Can't... What was the episode? It was reality stars going on and explaining what it's like and the mental toll it's like. And uh, Millsy from Australian Idol was saying that he was almost suicidal after Mm. all the attention. And it wasn't even negative attention. It was just attention. Of course. I feel personally responsible and I haven't told anyone this. This will be good. The Bachelor villain Ryan from last season, do you remember? The one who kept licking his lips and his teeth? Oh. Mm. Okay, so Ryan, oh, he was on the show. I know show. what you're about to say as well. He was on the show and he was saying that journalists kept writing nasty articles about him licking his lips and teeth and saying that that makes him a creep. I was one of those journalists. I think you were the only one. Yeah, probably the main one. And I feel I felt bad watching it. I mean, he's fine. He was saying he's fine. But that he found it really curious that these articles kept popping up when it was just very clever editing. I was that journalist. So I was watching this show feeling all this sympathy for all these other stars going, oh, my God, you poor thing. How terrible for people to write this about you. I wrote a funny article last year about when guys lick their teeth and their lips while they're talking to you, they're often a bit shit yes you did it was actually quite a funny article and the images that we didn't didn't you made gifts yeah i made every gif every time he licked his lips or teeth i made a gif out of it yeah i think that was my first introduction in how to diy gifts but i i it's it sucks in that kind of thing and i think i can look back on stuff definitely and regret writing it but in the moment i don't think you would change a decision Mm -hmm. and not because anyone's a bad person but because when it's your job as a journalist to write stories and when there's a reality tv show on of course we would love to live in a happy world where we would give every single person and every single character in that house the benefit of the doubt but that's what they sign up for and i know that sounds very harsh and we do need to consider the mental toll after reality television but what are we meant to do sit back and watch the bachelor and not consider that each of these people is a character worth talking about yeah and it's really tricky because as a writer when you you look at these stories the complexity arises because you are writing about something that everyone says this isn't real everyone these days says the bachelor isn't real it's all production it's all whatever and so usually that tone is infused in the stories i know the ones that we write is that this is not a human this is a character and we're very clearly establishing that. yeah and then that's where the problem is that you're talking about fake storylines and fake characters and you're really giving the reader the benefit of the doubt that this is all production and editing But then at the same time, the people playing those characters are actual people actually called Ryan who might lick his teeth when he talks to women. So it's really... Well, then he's a bit shit. I'm kidding. So that was a really interesting moment for me. I was watching it with my grandmother and she might be listening to this. I didn't tell her that I was one of the journalists who wrote that article. So we have a different insight into this as well again, because when we were working together on weekends last year, we had another run in with another reality TV celebrity that was quite concerning to us. I was like, what, what run in? We have a lot of weird <laughs> run ins with reality TV in that job. We did. This was probably one of the, I think we have to be careful how we tell this story, but I think it can be a good insight into how reality stars struggle. We got a message, an anonymous tip off that a former reality star had been admitted to hospital after self-harming. Yes. And we investigated the story simply because. Well, I mean, se- we were told she was dead. 
Mm, so, we were told she was yeah, dead. Yeah, and I think that's worth reporting. If we could get the facts on that, that our former reality star was dead, then we would have we would have written the story. And someone who's fairly well known in the Australian media as well. So we received yeah. this anonymous tip off from an unusual email. We tried to call the person who is involved. It was hours of back and forth, back and forth. And hearing that this reality star was dead, we were obviously pretty upset. It was one of those situations where we want to investigate it. So we were calling up Ambulance Victoria. We were calling hospitals in the area to confirm if a woman her age had died and no one came back with any information for us. So eventually, after hours and hours of research, we kind of arrived at the opinion that this person who was giving us the anonymous tip-off was actually the reality star herself who wanted to be in headlines with a kind of faux death story so that she would generate interest again. Yeah, I know that sounds like quite a leap. You have to imagine we went to a million checks and balances to work this out and there were quite a few things that made us think that this was the case. So it wasn't just us guessing there were no, we... numerous things that sort of made us all think we're not sure this is quite on. But it was one of the saddest days I think I've been at work because it did it did make me realise, although when you work in the media – so many good stories are broken and things like that. And, and it's, it's essential to how we function as a democracy. When you are part of the media that gives voice all the time to reality stars and these reality stars might be very vulnerable and might not be in the best headspace and the mental toll of their experience on the show might really start, you know, taking hold. You do have to think about your role in that because we absolutely can't play dumb and we cannot play the innocent card. Mm, and I will never forget that day at work. Never. I think we went through so many emotions from being very upset when we first found out that she had supposedly died to then slowly over the hours since where we were really thoroughly investigating what had happened, realising this is equally sad almost because someone oh. is so troubled and so uh, struggling with how to – either deal with what they've done to their life by going on reality television. Just maintain a sense of relevance and a sense of self. Yeah, to, to maintain that sense of self, they need to fake their own death. It was just one of the weirdest experiences I've had professionally. And obviously we never run a story on it. We never touched it. Why would we? But I think that really gave us personal insight and might give you listening a personal insight into what these people might be going through and how desperate their lives might be getting where their only reinforcement and their only boost in life is to get headlines that eventually destroy them. I know. And I think I want to go back a second as well, because I think when we, when I did say the media thinks we're stupid and they're feeding us these headlines and, and then the, the reality stars are asking for the headlines and it's just like this cyclical back and forth kind of thing. We want smart stuff. I don't think that the media or big news organisations understand or maybe they just don't have the resources to understand how much we want smart things now. I think the biggest example of this that I saw was after the New York Times, Megan Tilly and Jodie Cantor did their investigations into Harvey Weinstein. And in the months after those stories went live – the publisher's shares jumped as much as 13.8%, which is the highest those shares have jumped since 2007. And the company added 157,000 digital subscribers in the quarter after. Wow. Which was, again, one of their biggest jumps. Which proved that people are willing to pay for good journalism if it comes. At the moment, they just don't know where to find it because the only stuff they're seeing potentially on their newsfeed is the reality star stuff. It's which all is sugar not, hit stuff that which makes Which is not you... helpful for, or healthy for, for the subject or for the reader yeah and it's also not healthy in that you click in you read a couple of headlines you get your hit of sugar but you end up clicking out and you feel just a bit shit which i've had to sort of live with for the last god 10 15 years of picture of me with a b bump and a circle around my stomach with an arrow pointing to it in just this sort of disgustingly objectifying kind of way and i was just fed up with it and i think these, these tabloids, all of us, need to take responsibility on, on what we in, ingest into our brains. Because just because we're women, we have a uterus, we have a vagina, we have ovaries, we need to, like, get to work, lady. As opposed to, hello, freedom medal. We, have, we as women do a lot of incredible things in this world other than just... 
Jen Aniston's sirens are blaring and she'd like to alert the world, with all due respect, I'm not heartbroken. This week, in a blistering interview with InStyle magazine's Molly McNerney, the 49-year-old spoke about her divorces, her career and public sentiment that she must be a failure simply because she isn't a mother. Zara, how did you feel about the article and what do you think it says about single women in 2018? I loved the article. I, I, I've i always been a, a huge closeted Jen Aniston fan. Yep. Same. I think since Friends maybe. Um, so, and I think there's, there's a real sense online now that when a high profile woman who might be over the age of 40 gives some kick-ass quotes, we are, I hate this saying, but we're like very here for it. We're very here for what it. What else do I say? We Jen are... Aniston claps back. <laughs> <laughs> but it, that's what I mean. Like the world is actually ready and waiting to celebrate that. There yeah. is there is little doubt about that. It reminded me a lot even, you know, a couple of months ago when Ellen Pompeo gave that interview. I think it was with InStyle as well. Yeah, and about, about pay and things like that. And she her quotes were so unapologetic. And I think there is a sense that we're willing to put women on a platform that are unapologetic it did make me sad though these quotes because it made me realize how much damage our conversations about women and singleton can do to a woman who's at the center of it yeah and it might feel frivolous buying one of those stupid magazines like women's day or whatever Mm. is it women's day women's day women's day i think it's women's because women think of the grammar and stuff all right well it might feel fine and frivolous to buy that magazine or read at the hairdresser but eventually you're kind of undermining a woman who is worth 200 million dollars and then calling her a failure simply because she hasn't procreated she is one of jen aniston is a kick-ass self-made woman and for her to be penciled down as a sad childless human is just so ridiculous yeah, it's really tough. It also made me think about how men and women can go about breakups very differently. So Jen and Justin Theroux broke up what, six, seven months ago. Right? Yeah, it was early in the year. Six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, a sizable time ago now. And Justin Theroux has been papped. I don't think I've ever seen more pap shots of Justin Theroux in my life. He was pretty under the radar before A, they got together and B, they broke up. He's been photographed a lot with Emma Stone but just photographed everywhere on the art scene in New York I think Thoreau mm, considers himself quite an 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 arty actor who Mm. bases himself in New York while Jen Aniston is very LA but she hasn't done anything she I barely seen any pap shots she hasn't been around I think the only time I've seen her make a headline was in the immediate aftermath of that breakup and she was sort of on a girls weekend with maybe 10 or 12 of her closest friends and it was her birthday and on Instagram maybe six or seven of these friends uploaded a group shot happy birthday and it was it made me laugh because it made me think of of every woman ever that's gone through a breakup and how her friends respond on social media they just rally around (laughs) you don't they absolutely I think I've got a, a huge knack now for for finding out or working out if someone has broken up all you have to look is not their social media activity but their friends All their friends and then about two weeks later, one really good bikini pic. And all the comments. Yeah. You look amazing. Yeah, exactly. So that is all I've heard from her. And I think it tells a really sad story about how when that kind of thing is going on, she kind of does have to retreat because she doesn't want to be in the headlines. She doesn't want to be part of our conversations. Whereas Justin Theroux can can get away with, with being seen with multiple different younger stars. Yeah, and it's also quite depressing that we still make this value judgment or personality judgment based on whether or not a woman has kids. Think back to Julia Gillard mm. and how we all judged her when she didn't have kids. It's almost like we hear that they don't have children or they have no desire to have children and we instantly say, well, what does that say about them? What does that say about this woman's spirit or her soul or her personality that she doesn't want to bring another life into this world? It's almost a level of selfishness and cold-heartedness that we put onto Jen Aniston and Julia Gillard because they don't want children. And as Jen said in her interview, no one knows what's going on behind closed doors. No one considers how sensitive that might be for me and my partner. They don't know what I've been through medically or emotionally. That really stuck out to me because I think that was one of the first times I have ever seen her acknowledge that there might have been a lot of things going on behind the scenes. And she shouldn't have had to have said that. It's It really surprises me that as a society, when we know infertility is quite prevalent and, and women struggling to have a baby can be one of the most sensitive issues out there that we can't afford them the benefit of the doubt why we can't why why we do take on this really 
harsh, you know, point of view about it when, when we know most likely perhaps they are struggling. Well, even then, it's interesting to me that she said that and it's interesting what the response to that will look like because does it make a difference if you chose not to have kids because you simply don't want kids yeah, or if you didn't have kids because you're infertile? Is there that much of a difference? Yeah, like it's almost that. like saying, oh, because she's infertile, that suddenly makes it okay because she's still in her heart, knew that her ultimate job was to make kids and to procreate or she wanted that, so that's okay. Whereas the women who just don't have kids out of choice – are somehow weird and not wired in the correct way. No, you're absolutely right. And I think what I meant when I said that is more in a sense that we're making a, a really harrowing situation from somebody who can't talk about it much harder. And it's, it's, it's crazy to me that we weren't willing to consider that. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I think our discourse around singledom and women is so interesting because when men are single, it's like they're actively choosing not to be in a relationship until they decide to be in one. When women are single, it's like, why haven't they been chosen yet? Yeah. So I was thinking about this last night. I was trying to think of a good metaphor to illustrate how I think we see it. I think society views a man's relationship status as a full stop, whereas a woman's relationship status, if she's anything other than married or in a significant long-term committed relationship, that's an ellipsis. So mm. that's saying dot, 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 to be continued, not finished yet. Whereas if a man's single, there's no question. George Clooney was single into his 50s. No one ever really stopped to go, when's he going to settle down and have kids? It was just accepted that that is George Clooney. He's a bit of a single guy. He's a bachelor. He likes his own private space and time. Whereas with a woman, it's always in a state of limbo. You can never just be single and be happy. It's you're single and waiting for the right guy. Well, that's what I thought a lot when I saw these quotes is that I love the conversation that will inevitably come around them, which has happened, which is how kick-ass is this. But I did, it did make me think that I would put everything I own on the fact that in a year's time, if Jennifer Aniston comes out with a partner, the media will melt. They will. Everybody will be stoked for her because that's like her her fairy tale coming true. I saw a great tweet this week actually from an Australian journalist called Sophie Benjamin. She said, can I just say that in a society that prizes romantic love above all else, closely followed by blood relatives, having friends is often fobbed off as something you only do while waiting for the other two options. It's bullshit. Invest wisely in your friendships. Oh, I love that. And it is so true because it's exactly what you just said in that her relationship status is sort of a to be continued. I'm just going to be really close with my girlfriends as I wait. But I think there would be women over the age of 50 who would kill to have the kind of circle of friends that Jennifer Aniston seems to have around her, which I think is very underrated. And some of the women in their prime, which is a term coined by Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, which obviously we both love, I think that term, women in their prime, definitely applies to Jen Aniston because she and many of the women that I know who are single well into their 30s, 40s and 50s are some of the most grounded women I've ever met. And I think we really downplay how much self-exploration and how much you can grow as a person in being single. We're both obviously in long-term relationships. This yeah. is quite odd for us to be talking about. No, but I think the most formative year of my life was the year that I was single. Yeah. And it sounds well, it was I was what, like 20, 21. It's not... It's not fun, particularly in the immediate aftermath. And that's what struck me about how news outlets report about Jennifer Aniston's quote-unquote heartbreak, even though she has said she's not heartbroken, is that there's very little nuance. She's either very happy and stoked with her life or totally heartbroken. So there's no nuance to any of our public discussions about breakups. Why can't she just be somewhere in the middle? I think the most likely scenario for somebody six months after a pretty serious breakup, they're probably not very happy. They're probably not very sad. They're probably just floating through. Yeah. That's the most likely scenario, but we never talk about that. You have to be one or the other. You have to be so happy with how things are going and loving the single life or totally heartbreaking with how things have ended. It's quite unusual as well that we continue to talk about relationships, marriage and babies as the be all and end all, because the idea of a relationship one relationship over your lifetime is very old fashioned. Now we live longer than we ever have. We have more freedom than we've ever had in Australia and in the U S and in any other developed country. It's, not all that realistic to expect someone like Jen Aniston to settle down and have that husband forever or to expect any woman in her 40s and 50s to have the one husband forever. We are having multiple long-term relationships these She's days. She's had two. 
Look at Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, exactly. With 17 under his belt. Exactly. But the idea of one relationship over a lifetime doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. We're living so much longer. People change so much. We're not tied down in a marriage, really. And someone with the economic freedom of Jen Aniston, she doesn't have to be oh, in a relationship. Dust her hands of that one if she's done. Yeah. I agree. I think it's also no surprise we should mention as well that this came out in InStyle, which is headed up by Laura Brown, who's an Australian who has quite a, uh, an American twang these days because she's been in the States for so long. But I think when just off the back of our conversation about Vogue, InStyle is sort of carving itself to be one of the most relevant publications in the US, I would argue, because the shit, Laura Brown is, if you don't know who Laura Brown is, I would recommend doing some reading or doing some listening because she's quite an interesting character alone in the media. I think, and she's also childless and yeah. also is quite vocal about if, choosing her career. Really, and dating a guy who's maybe ten, fifteen years younger than her, he writes some good stuff about their relationship too. In fact, I'm going to link all of this. There's a great profile on Laura Brown in, um, I think it was the SMH by Amelia Lester about a year and a half ago, which is a great read. Mia Friedman, our old boss, did a No Filter podcast interview with Laura that Brown. That was a great interview, yeah. Which is really worth a listen, which I'll put in the show notes. She is a character in this industry that is sort of proves that the nice girl image in the industry pays off. She is very close with a lot of high-profile celebrities and not in an annoying way. And it is no surprise that somebody like Jennifer Aniston would, would trust in style with this story. And I think the journal was a good friend of hers as well. Yeah. So I don't think it, I think putting it in context as well, a lot of good stories and good in- interviews are coming through in style because I think there's a lot of trust there now in the industry. Yeah, it's a really big renaissance of that publication. Mm. And Laura Brown has really turned it into something that's, relevant relevant it's infused with feminism and it's infused with this idea that we've been talking about that single women women in their 30s 40s and 50s and beyond are women in their prime you don't have to be 25 on instagram with a million followers and having a hot boyfriend to be in your prime that is not a woman in her prime a woman in her prime is jen aniston worth 200 million dollars completely self-made and still kicking career goals even into her 50s now Hey, I reckon that's all we have time for today. It is. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 22. Before we go, we're a little independent podcast. It is just Sarah and I here. So if you love Shameless and want to help us grow, you can do a few things. The first is click subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That helps new listeners find our show every single week. We can't tell you how much those reviews and subscribes help us out. So anyone who leaves a review is a VIP listener in our eyes. Not that there's any way to measure that or reward it, but sure. (laughs) The second thing is you can tell a friend, invite them to our Facebook group, Shameless Celebrity Gossip. You are so welcome there. There's some great stuff going on in there, so please come and join. Or send them this episode if they need some smart celebrity news in their life with an annoying, croaky voice to boot. And that's it. We'll see you guys in the Facebook group or on our Insta. Until then, we'll chat next Monday. See you then. Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.